HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's Central Coast. Available seasonally at select Whole Foods markets. Learn more at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You're listening to a special edition of The Farm Report from Heritage Radio Network and the National Young Farmers Coalition. I'm your host, Lee Ullman, with my co-host, Alita Kelly. We work with a coalition of tens of thousands of farmers and advocates across the country calling for land justice, climate action, and a more equitable future for agriculture. On this special series, we're digging into the Farm Bill, an incredibly powerful, multi-billion dollar package of legislation. It influences what we eat, and so much more. Over the course of the series, we'll be talking to farmers, policymakers, organizers, and food advocates about all the ways the Farm Bill directly impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not. We'll break down farm policy and talk to young farmers about what hangs in the balance for them as another Farm Bill gets made. We hope these stories from the front lines of our food system inspire you. Join us to shift power and change policy to support the next generation of growers and land stewards. The future of good food depends on it. Hello, welcome to The Farm Report, a special edition hosted by Young Farmers, where we talk about all things Farm Bill. I'm your host, Lee Ullman. As Young Farmers Land Organizing Manager, I work with young and BIPOC farmers to advocate for more equitable land access. And in this episode, my co-host Alita and I are talking about climate change. What are farmers experiencing on their land? How is it affecting their ability to produce? And what is the Farm Bill doing to address this crisis? We're going to start with policy expert Abby Fain. She's the chief legal and policy officer for the Intertribal Agriculture Council. We went to Abby to learn about conservation programs more generally, but we also wanted some insight into how the Farm Bill specifically impacts tribal communities today. We're going to jump right into hearing about how the IAC was created during a major climate event back in 1987. By the way, this interview took place before Congress extended the Farm Bill into September 2024. The Intertribal Agriculture Council was born out of some 
drought crises that occurred in the late 1980s when tribal producers in the Great Plains were really struggling to get hay to feed their animals at the height of a drought and at the height of some severe weather. So uh, since that time, IAC has been working to uh, make sure that there is a voice to speak to issues and priority concerns for individual tribal producers as well as tribes that are operating either their own agriculture operations or implementing their own laws uh, that impact producers on their reservations. And so IAC has really been at the forefront of voicing the concerns of Indian country. What is happening with climate in the Farm Bill? Can you talk a little bit about which titles in the Farm Bill directly relate to climate and what happens uh, to those if we don't have a Farm Bill by the end of the year? I would say uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a title in the Farm Bill that isn't impacted by climate to some degree, whether it's extreme weather conditions, whether it's adverse weather conditions, what is happening with climate, with weather, it impacts every single title. I think the go-to one that we work with most regularly is the conservation title, Title II. But, you know, we uh, at IAC especially are looking at Title V, the credit title, uh, when you're financing agriculture, it really should take into account financing uh, climate change efforts. Are we empowering producers to utilize practices that are considered best practices with regard to climate change? Because those types of efforts aren't going to come without some type of cost. But are we financing those efforts in a way that really lets people who want to adjust their practices to make sure that what they're doing um, contributes to positively addressing climate change? Yes. And getting into more about conservation programs specifically, um, what are some other limitations of conservation programs and and how do conservation programs support climate action? A little bit earlier, I alluded to um, some USDA programming not always fitting neatly on tribal lands uh, specifically. Um, some of the limitations, and again, a lot of my perspectives are going to come from a tribal-centric view. And in this case, one of the priorities we have is also a limitation that's currently in place. And in conservation, uh, there are opportunities for states and local governments to identify conservation priority resource concerns, but tribal governments aren't included in that process to be one of the governments identifying what priority resource concerns are in any given state. And thus, those priority resource concerns weigh on the types of projects that are funded. 
And so if tribal governments don't have a voice in identifying tribal priority resource concerns, even if theirs are something different than what the county or state where their boundaries are located, they're not going to be afforded the same weight when NRCS is reviewing projects that it's going to fund. There are tribes that cross state lines as well. And in those cases, you trigger another issue because you're not just working with one state conservationist, you're working with two. Because, you know, while your tribal lands are, uh, you know, one reservation, if you're crossing state lines or sometimes, like in the case of Navajo, multiple state lines, it really adds some complexity around how you can comprehensively address what conservation practice you're going to do because it largely will depend on which state that you fall in for any given project. So with other federal conservation programs, mostly being geared towards larger farms, um, could you speak um, at all to the potential of increasing opportunities for small to mid-sized farms um, in getting support from federal funding for conservation practices? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I would say at IEC, what we know is um, any laws that support small to mid-sized producers gaining access to any program, but especially conservation program, is really critical. A lot of the conservation programs in some ways can be lifelines for producers, depending on what other types of resources they are or are not able to access. Um, What we also see is that, especially within tribal communities, a lot of our producers are going to be those small and mid-sized producers. And in those instances, accessing conservation funding is very competitive. And we don't often see the the dollars for conservation funding reaching the individual tribal producers on tribal lands who are going to fall within that small to mid-sized farm range. And so we just see access to conservation funding as a means to ensure the sustainability of agriculture operations, especially on that smaller to mid-sized scale where you don't have the same cushion that a large producer will have and you don't have the same voice that a large-scale producer has. Absolutely. Thank you for elevating that. Yeah, I think sometimes we hear conservation and we think, oh, that would be like an added bonus to a farm, but you're saying it's critical, like this is a lifeline for for small to mid-sized farmers. Absolutely. And I think especially what we've seen historically in tribal communities is sometimes access is limited because the practice being pursued 
isn't one that is recognized as an accepted conservation practice. And we're seeing a movement towards change on that around traditional ecological knowledge. Then you have a lot of instances where individual producers might be left out of a program because they don't use the right words. They don't use the words that a government agency wants to hear to describe a project. One of the examples that my boss has provided, she spent her career prior to IAC uh, working for NRCS in North Dakota and South Dakota. And one of the methods she would take with her is she might take a picture board that showed examples of different practices and asks the producer which one they were trying to wanting to do. And so they could would point at what they were thinking about. But the way they described it, if they had just gone based off of the words, it wouldn't have met the criteria that uh, the agency was looking for. And so there are these have historically been these disconnects that aren't just based on size, but accessibility around because of how conservation practices are communicated and how they're actually accepted based off of historical knowledge. Absolutely. Can we switch and talk a little bit more about water conservation and, and maybe you can share more about how conservation programs impact water conservation? For instance, irrigation is a huge cost in EQIP. Does that benefit farmers or is it depleting water resources? I would say that it largely, would, I, I would say benefits. I think what we've heard in the course of the roundtables that we've done throughout Indian country is water is a top priority. And for those same producers who are saying water is a top priority, they're also talking about the necessity of NRCS and access to EQIP. And so I think they really go hand in hand. Yeah. And just to kind of um, expand on that, we've been talking about conservation and the importance of, of USDA funding and, and for farmers to have access to some of the support as they're dealing with, you know, climate change and water and, and farming being a risky business. So then I think it sort of leads in nicely to talking about crop insurance, which is another huge piece. Um, right. And so can you talk a little bit about right now, who benefits from the current crop insurance program? Uh, the current crop insurance program, you know, it it is one that I think historically has been more difficult for um, producer, tribal producers, and then uh, BIPOC producers more generally to access. Um, you know, in order to access uh, crop insurance, you have to have access to crop insurance agents. You have to have access to agents who understand your communities and the agriculture practices within your communities. I know that uh, IAC is working with other partner organizations to uh, do a pilot program that seeks to train 
more crop insurance agents from each of our communities to ensure that the people who are able to assist with these products are the people who are your neighbors. Or if you're doing a practice that maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with, but it's in your community and you already have an understanding of it, it's not so risky to say, of course, we'll ensure that practice, or of course, we'll ensure what you're doing in your operation, because within this community, that's a pretty standard practice or way of going about what you're trying to accomplish within your operation. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hearst Ranch, in collaboration with Whole Foods Market, is proud to be the presenting sponsor of The Farm Report, a special HRN series in collaboration with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Tune in each week to hear from farmers, policymakers, organizers, and food advocates about all the ways the Farm Bill directly impacts our lives, whether we realize it or not. They'll break down farm policy and talk to young farmers about what hangs in the balance for them as another farm bill gets made. Join the coalition to shift power and change policy for the next generation of growers and land stewards. The future of good food depends on it. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. So how are young farmers across the country dealing with impacts of climate change? We talked to some of Young Farmers' land and water advocacy fellows about the changes they are seeing on their farms. The specific issues they're facing may be different, but they struggle with many of the conflicts we just heard about from Abby. Susan Mitchell of Cloverleaf Farms is growing organic vegetables, herbs, and flowers in Connecticut. She's noticed some major changes in the past five years. I farm in New England where our farms are small and they are very diversified. And so we don't actually grow a lot of our own food here and still rely a lot on um, fruits and vegetables coming from other parts of the country and the world. And so when I talk to CSA members or when I talk to my representative in the U.S. House, I talk about climate change because I talk about food security and being able to provide food grown where we live or more food grown where we live. But on like a more localized scale, I mean, I think everyone would agree that we see more intense storms. We in New England are seeing higher rainfall events more frequently, lots of erosion. Um, some significant flooding, depending on where you are. And it is it is an unknown from a year-to-year basis right now what we can expect weather-wise. And so because it is so variable, you just have to be able to roll with whatever's thrown your way. And so how can we manage that Um, I think for vegetable growers, it becomes growing under high tunnels in some sort of um, structure so that you can protect plants for longer periods of time in humid areas where we are, in areas where we get rainfall, which is great. It often comes too much too fast right now. 
So have you noticed that during your time farming, weather patterns and and rain and water, like that has changed dramatically from when you got started? Or has it been pretty consistent? It seems to have changed dramatically, I would say, within the last five years, like dramatically. And I often ask older farmers that I that I know and run into, people who have been farming for 30, 40, 50 years, like, I, I want to know their answer to that question, you know? Um, and they do. They say, they say things are different. Matt Hollenbeck is the apple farmer in central New York that we heard from last episode. He said the increasingly unpredictable weather can make or break farms that focus on perennials, like apples. I'm planting perennials, right? Like that's such a terrifying thing to do in the face of in the face of climate change. Um, right? Like you talk to people in different parts of the country, we grow different apples, right? Uh, because, you know, things need certain amount of chill hours, things take longer to ripen. So what I'm planting is I sort of have a little bit reached in both directions for things that can handle more extreme, uh, like early and, and late frosts, but also things that need less chill hours. And just with the knowledge that some of that is going to fail, like there's going to be essentially some percentage of crop failure every year, because I don't really know what's coming. And I've had to sort of prepare for that because, you know, with sort of modern apple growing techniques, they're sort of like glorified woody tomatoes, right? The rows are 11 feet apart and they're trellised with the infrastructure and that volume of trees from planting to paying that off is like the best estimate. If you do a great job is seven years. And so Doing that and then like knowing some portion of that just isn't actually going to produce every year is kind of disheartening. This past year on May 18th, we had a super hard frost uh, that was 15 15 days away from our frost-free date. Uh, And it was uh, at at my, my farm, my orchard, it was 22 and a half overnight. So, like, everything was gone, which, you know, this year saved me about three days of work of clipping all of the fruitlets uh, (laughs) because I wouldn't have let it fruit. But, um, oh, my God, it was like the scariest thing for the future, right? There's virtually nothing you're going to do to get any sort of reasonable crop. Out West, farmers like LeVar Eady in New Mexico and ranchers like Shannon Mays in Colorado are worried about drought and access to water. They're both implementing conservation practices on their farms in order to cope, but struggle with finding access to capital to support these efforts. Here's LeVar. My name is LeVar Eady. I'm the CEO and founder of Blue Rock Farms, uh, where we cultivate uh, CBD. And uh, as our motto goes, we farm the land and cultivate our community. Uh, my farm's located in Belinda, Mexico. It's about 30 minutes outside of Albuquerque. Um, it's a five-acre farm. I purchased it in 2020, and it's a small community. It's uh, kind of on the outskirts, which is uh, beneficial for me, but uh, it does uh, require some some extra work as a result of that uh, secludity. 
And were there any barriers for you to get the land that you're on? Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like for you? Yeah. So, um, purchasing the land was, uh, a long process. Um, it's, it took, it took me a while to save up the money to, uh, garner, uh, that five acres. I did, uh, do a lease to own program, um, where I was making monthly payments to, to purchase the land. Um, and I was fortunate enough to find, uh, because of it being so secluded and, uh, some of the other obstacles such as in not having water was one of the reasons why it was so, uh, low. Um, and I was able to purchase it. And then, uh, so that's one of the challenges that we have on that on the farm is we don't have a well. We are in the process of doing a fundraiser to acquire the the funds, the capital needed to um, be able to access or have a well on on site. Currently, we're hauling water. Yeah, the purchasing pro- the the process was really difficult. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be saving and have the opportunity at the right time. It's not the norm, put it that way. So. Yeah, I was just fortunate enough to to be in a position, and I really got a really good deal on the on the land as well. It was very inexpensive in comparison to other properties. You mentioned you know lack of water on your land, mm-hmm. and I, I just kind of want to understand more about what that means. Can you talk about how drought and lack of adequate water is affecting your farm? Uh, yes, um, uh, since I've purchased the land in excuse me in twenty twenty, we've seen increase in well, one, temperatures, uh, particularly, especially this year, um, we saw record highs um, on, on the property. And we also saw decrease in waterfall. So we know that that's very vital for the production of the plants that we're trying to grow. Luckily enough, we are using different methods to help with water retention and soil erosion to help combat the droughts. But having more access to capital, having more... Um, opportunities for different equipment to assist with that would be essential as well as having uh, crop insurance because specifically with CBD, if you don't have the proper environmental situations, you're adding stress to the plant. If you add stress to your plant, specifically CBD and hemp, you increase your risk of not passing uh, the TAC qualifications. So you need to be below 0.3% of TAC, but if your plants get stressed because of heat, because of lack of water, uh, that can cause an increase in your TAC potency, which can get you over the limit and ca- cause you to have to destroy that crop. And for small farmers like myself, um, if you have to destroy your, your whole crop for that year, that can be devastating to your farm. And a lot of farms don't recover. That can be evident by the number of uh, CBD producers in New Mexico alone. Each year, the number keeps on dropping which is an indication, um, some of it, I believe, is just a lack of knowledge of understanding the plant and people trying to get into the space too quickly. And then uh, other is that they're not having the proper access to the things needed to help combat these climate changes. And how do you sort of account for those climate issues in your farming practices? So one of the things that we're doing is trying to, uh, well, we increase the amount of cover crop that we have on the farm uh, to help with soil erosion and water retention. Um, And having a great mix of biodiversity. Um, We found it has been very beneficial for our farm, making sure we're having a mix of nitrogen-fixing plants as well as deep-root penetrating plants to help with soil compaction. Having that mix really uh, creates an ecosystem on the farm that allows for some buffer against climate changes, especially the heat rise, Um, but it's not the perfect solution. Um, So there's other things that we would love to implement 
such as um, an air to water generator, which can help with the fact that we don't have as much water on the property as we would necessarily need um, with the air to water generator that would produce the water coming from the air to give us the water we need to substantiate the plants, as well as uh, different irrigation methods um, using oil pots to help so that we're not getting so much water evaporation um, from the plants. Um, those are the kind of main things that we've implemented and that we would love to implement to a, a higher standard um, with additional capital. Right. So you're doing all these things, but all these things cost a lot of money to do, right? So who's helping you with that? So at this time, everything that we've done has been self-funded or as a result of the GoFundMe that we started. We're always in a constant threat of not being able to continue. Um, so it's just a matter of uh, really me hustling to get the capital needed to keep the company running. Um, we did apply for the Healthy Soil Conservation uh, Program. We weren't uh, accepted for a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons that was frustrating to me and our company was specifically that they said because we grow hemp. So we lost a year of production last year as a result of it and, and didn't get accepted because of something that was known prior to us applying for the grant um, within the grant and they approached me about the grant. So uh, those things are frustrating um, is, is really uh, that, um, as well as I think they need to really streamline the processes of these grants and these loan applications. It's about time, really, about the capacity that you have in time. Because if the document or the grant or the loan is 20, 30, 40 pages, plus supplemental documentation that's needed, which is not like you just have readily available, you have to go, you know, go, go to your bank or whatever, you know, that takes time away from you actually producing the product that you're creating. A lot of us, especially the small farmers, we don't have large crews where we can go, hey, you guys do this work um, while I go work on this grant to get us more money. I got to determine where I'm going to spend my time. Is it going to be trying to get this grant that I might not get? Um, that's going to take away time from me producing products that is going to give me some return on our investment um, and the capital that we already put into the farm. So I think having some assistance with that or streamlining it to a manner where it's more applicable and productive for small farmers. Just kind of going back again to the farm bill and to some of the specific things that you've been advocating for, you know, if your member of Congress just kind of walked into the room where you are today and asked you how they could support you, what's what's like one thing that you would say to them that's the most important for them to advocate for in the farm bill? For me personally, I would say is uh, having more grants and loans and streamlining that process to allow us to be able to get more equipment or having pre-approved loans so that we can get the equipment or the land, depending on the situation, as well as provide opportunities to teach young farmers different things of farming as well as business acumen so that they can get to the point to potentially start their own farms. You know, having, having grants and loans that are geared towards smaller, specifically smaller farms, less than, you know, 50 acres, <laughs> less than uh, even 10 acres would be instrumental uh, for, for our farms because that equipment, that would be literally a game changer. We have one more voice to hear from. Here's Shannon, a rancher and ditch rider in Colorado. Ditch riders have very cool jobs. They make sure irrigation waters are flowing so farmers have access. I'm Shannon Mays, and I work on 
the San Juan Ranch in the San Luis Valley, just outside of Sawatch, Colorado. The San Luis Valley is a really special and unique place. It's this high elevation, big, wide valley between the San Juan mountain range in the west and the Sangre de Cristo mountain range in the east. It's this high elevation, ancient lake bed. There's this incredible water resource underground in the form of a confined aquifer deep down and then an unconfined aquifer above that. But on the surface, you wouldn't necessarily know that. You, there's many artesian springs and wells that kind of spread out across the valley floor and there's some very significant wetlands. Um, but a lot of the land looks pretty dry on the surface. So the land that I work on here on the ranch is um, Oh, it's really expansive. The valley floor tends to be pretty flat, so you can see a long, long way. And we have a mix of irrigated meadows here that are all native grasses and some dry land pastures as well that are native grasses. So it looks like kind of a grassland, brushland kind of mosaic out there. The sky's really big. Mm, yeah, the mountains kind of form the horizons on, on both sides. It sounds so beautiful. And I'm wondering how long you've actually been um, on that ranch and in that place and what patterns you've seen in terms of the changing weather? Absolutely. So I've what I've seen, and this is true not just of the last couple of years, but also, you know, what I remember from growing up in this region is that the the land is a lot drier. It seems like the weather is less predictable than it used to be. We don't really have these just incredible sublime monsoon seasons like I remember from being a young kid. Um, it seems like, you know, we it's kind of a, a hit or miss. Like we may have moisture in the spring and or the fall, but the monsoons, like they don't come or they're really late. It's challenging. You know, the spring moisture can be incredibly helpful. The fall moisture, a little bit less so, especially because, you know, folks are, a lot of folks are trying to make hay in one form or another. And also the hay piles don't retain their quality as well if, they, if they're getting rained on. And how does soil health help your, your ranch and help your operation? Yeah, that's a great question. Here, so much of what we do is about building soil health through our grazing practices, which looks like intensive managed grazing using a combination of temporary and permanent fencing. So that's on the lands that are managed on the valley floor, but then we also have a BLM permit just in the foothills of the San Juans directly to the west of here. And, and we've done some herding and drift fence building, temporary drift fence building on the range to help us get better utilization there. And that's all with the intention of maximizing that beneficial relationship between grazing animals and plants so that we can get the, the maximum benefit of, you know, stimulating new growth in those plants, removing old growth, spreading seeds, breaking up soil caps, adding beneficial microorganisms to the soil directly from those animals' bodies through manure, adding you know, urea, adding nitrogen through urine. All of these ecosystems are so precipitation dependent and we don't really see a lot of action biologically unless we also see moisture in some form or another. And so through increasing carbon 
soil organic matter, we increase the water holding capacity of our soil and we increase the functionality of not only the carbon cycle, but also the water cycle on the lands that we manage. You're linking what's happening with the soil to water conservation and, and you know, grazing animals. They're all, all these things are connected. It is a system. And I love the way that you're, you're talking about that. You know, you're, you're doing all this work, but what kind of help do you need or what kind of resources would you want from the federal government or the farm bill that could help you to continue to do this type of work? Something that I would love to see is farmers and ranchers getting paid for, for the ecological stewardship services that we provide, not just the, the food products or fiber products that we are able to make available to our communities, but also for, for the health of the landscape that we are directly involved in creating and maintaining every day. Like so much of the work that we do, we actually don't get paid for. We only get paid for the product that we create. But probably the most valuable thing that we do, honestly, we are not getting paid for right now. And that's true for so many people. If there's a way that we could change our subsidy system through the farm bill that leads to the production of commodity crops like corn and soy and maybe rethink what we're subsidizing and how in terms of thinking about, you know, what we want to see for our landscape, what we want to see for our animals, what kind of jobs we want to see, and how we value the work that people are doing in our food system and in the landscape and try to redistribute that wealth. I would love to see something that just like put tools for better land management, better animal management in the hands of people doing this work in this area right now. So that includes like actual material resources and also education and technical assistance. Like I think programs that invest in us directly will probably have the biggest benefit short and long term. Yeah. Yeah, you're, if you invest in your farmers and ranchers, you know, y'all are, we're all making investments into the land that ultimately have a return for everybody. Yeah, I would like to add a note about efficiency because I think so much of our, of our, you know, sort of bigger conversation about what's necessary in agriculture and particularly how we respond to drought and climate change in arid landscapes um, or we, you know, respond to like the high cost of labor compared to the amount of work that needs to be done. And we come back to this word efficiency, but I think that the way that we think about what efficiency means is pretty limited. And I think that it can actually get us in big trouble sometimes. So, you know, I've thought about efficiency as it relates to water quite a bit this season. So, for example, on the operation where I work now and the one that I worked on during most of this season, we do a lot of or mostly flood irrigation. And, you know, that's a, a very ancient practice that basically just pours a lot of water out on the land to get things wet. So flood irrigation, we can generally think of it as being 50% efficient, which means 50% of the water might be absorbed by the, the crops or the, the grass that we're, that we're irrigating. And then the other 50% pretty much goes back into the ground. And, you know, whatever plants absorb, then it's evapotranspirated and it goes up into the atmosphere. So that's 50%. Sprinkler is generally about 85%, which means that 85% of the water that we put out through a sprinkler is absorbed by plants and evapotranspirated. 
And with drip irrigation, that percentage is even higher. It's up over 90%. But all the water that we put through a plant ends up in the air. And not that that's a bad thing necessarily. It's not like it disappears from the earth, but it means that it leaves our local system and our just because of the way the climate is changing and our weather patterns are changing, our ability to recapture that through precipitation into our local watershed just diminishes more and more. You know, we tend to think of an ancient practice as being very inefficient, but if we look at what's actually being accomplished through it, you know, we see that actually we're getting all of these benefits that newer technologies that we think of as being more efficient are not providing for us. So, for example, you know, water that we put out on the landscape when we slow it, sink it, and spread it and store it in soil, we are basically magnifying its effect on our landscape and we're, we're kind of doing the work that beavers do on the landscape, which is really, really cool. So we're, we're storing water, we're helping sequester carbon through the more active soil microbes that are receiving that water and, you know, living their lives with it. We're creating lots of habitat, and through increasing carbon, we're increasing our water storage capacity as well. So I think, you know, we have this ever-increasing drive in agriculture, it seems like, towards like changing the ratio where we're producing more with less, and that's labeled as greater efficiency, but we're not really taking a holistic view of, of the impacts of our, of our management decisions and what would actually efficiently accomplish our goals if we acknowledge that our goals also include creating a more livable world as well as you know a food system that's more secure and local communities and rural communities that are more vibrant and more have more to offer for us especially viable livelihoods that will keep our young people in there how can we compensate farmers for all the work they do Susan, Matt, LeVar, and Shannon, they all expressed in one way or another how they're being overlooked by the current system set up to support our nation's farmers. And they're not the only ones being denied access to USDA funding or struggling to balance the health of the land with the profitability of their farms. Congress is considering two bills that could directly address some of the challenges that each of these farmers spoke about. The Small Farms Conservation Act and the Farmer to Farmer Education Act. You can find a link in the show notes to learn more about how these two bills could be included in the next Farm Bill. The Farm Report is hosted by Lee Ullman and Alita Kelly. We're produced by Lee Ullman, Evan Flum, and H. Conley. We're edited by Hannah Beal and H. Conley. Audio engineering is by Armin Spengen and H. Conley. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. The National Young Farmers Coalition is shifting power and changing policy to more equitably resource our new generation of working farmers. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you stream your shows and share it with someone you think would like to join the Young Farmers Movement. You can follow us on Instagram at heritage underscore radio and at Young Farmers or take action at youngfarmers.org slash advocate. Consider becoming a member of the National Young Farmers Coalition today for only a dollar a year at youngfarmers.org slash join. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Subscribe to The Farm Report from Heritage Radio Network wherever you listen to podcasts.